0: Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. Uh, my name is Michael Le Chevalier, and I am the associate director of the Lumen Christi Institute. Uh, what is the Lumen Christi Institute? The celebrated, um, university pre- president of the university of Chicago, president Robert Maynard Hutchins once remarked that the Catholic church has the longest intellectual tradition of any institution in the contemporary world. The mission of the Lumen Christi Institute is to make that tradition a vital part of the culture of today's university and the broad our broader society through lectures master classes non-credit courses and summer seminars um, each week those of you who have been tuning in have been able to get a taste for the type of programming that we provide to students each week in person and of course now to students across the nation as they tune in to learn from master scholars great church fathers and church mothers if you want to help support our work you can donate today at www.lumenchristie.org you can also support our work by sharing it with a friend Um, many of you have identified on the surveys after these events that you would recommend this event to others so we would invite you to do so not only sharing the video of events like this but also um, our future events I want to thank our co-sponsoring Catholic Institutes who are helping to extend the reach of these events by sharing it with their students. Now, in terms of announcements, next week is a rich week for the Catholic intellectual tradition at Lumen Christi. On Tuesday, we'll be hosting a discussion between economists, theologians, and ethicists on lessons learned after the lockdown, public health, economics, and the common good. Uh, This is part of the ongoing initiative of the Lumen Christi Institute to try and bring economics and Catholic social thought into dialogue. On Wednesday, we are co-sponsoring a symposium organized by the Collegium Institute, featuring four prominent female scholars on one of the great Catholic female writers of the 20th century, Flannery O'Connor, exploring imagination, solitude, and the oddities of life within her work. And finally, you can tune in again next week Thursday for our final lecture of this series with David Albertson on Nicholas of Cusa. Now I'd like to hand it over to Dr. Robert Porval um, who works with us to organize not only this series, but a range of events that we offer for undergraduate students here at the University of Chicago. Robert. Thank you, Michael.
1: And welcome to everyone for, to this second to last event in our series on Reason and Wisdom and medieval Christian thought. As you've as you've seen this before, you'll know it offers entries into the rich treasuries of spiritual and theological thought in the Middle Ages, and especially the, it highlights the tension we find between contemplative or spiritual and rational and, and uh, dialectical ways of seeking knowledge of God. Next week, as Michael already said, we'll be hosting Professor David Alberson to speak on the late medieval uh, Nicholas of Cusa, whose deep and rich thought is is, it's not well known enough. And as a heads up, we have in the works plans for a follow-up series on reason and beauty in the Renaissance. So stay tuned for more, uh, more information about that. At any time during tonight's presentation, you can ask a question using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And at the end of the presentation, I'll, I'll moderate a, a question and answer period uh, uh, with Professor McGinn. Um, if you have trouble with the connection, you can also stream us live uh, using the link at the top of your screen or on our on our site. And now let me introduce Bernard McGinn. Bernard McGinn is the Naomi Shenstone Donnelly Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology and History of Christianity in the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. He sits on the Committee of the Medieval Studies uh, of, of a Committee on Medieval Studies and on General Studies at the University and has written extensively on the history of apocalyptic thought, spirituality, and mysticism, and particularly on the thought of Meister Eckhart, who we, he's, he'll be speaking about today. He's a regular contributor to, to Lumen Christi programming and sort of been our companion through this, this quarantine time as well. And it's my delight to, uh, have, uh, to invite uh, uh, Bernard McGinn to turn on your, your camera and unmute yourself. Professor?
2: Oh, uh, just okay. Wait, just a minute.
1: All right. We're waiting. Uh, Look for the camera.
2: Am I there? Uh, we have a start my video.
1: There we go. Um, right. am, I, am I here? We see you loud and clear. Here, oh, see my you God. Clear clear. Go
2: I'm so glad to be here. Well, uh, Robert, th- thank you, and, and Michael, thank you, and to all of people who are out there uh, listening, I want to say a great word of thanks that you're interested in Eckhart, uh, especially in this hard time. And I'd like to just take a moment at the very beginning here, a moment of silence that we would all think about the 100,000 and more Americans who have just died. Many many of us have friends and relatives who are numbered in that group. So requiescant in pace, may they may they all rest in peace. Now I'm happy to talk about Meister Eckhart, which I've been doing for a long, long time, and to try to give a kind of uh, introduction to his thought in a relatively brief time, and. Uh, I'll do that under the inspiration of Meister Eckhart. This is a Meister Eckhart icon, um, done by a very nice um, Anglican brother called Brother Eckhart Camden, who uh, made this for me some years ago. And uh, Eckhart may not be canonized, but he's considered a blessed by many, not only the German Dominicans. So, you know, who was Eckhart, his times, and why is his mysticism and his thoughts so important today Uh, when you think that, you know, this is so many centuries, uh, many centuries later. And Eckhart himself, of course, is a controversial figure because uh, he was never declared a heretic. You'll read that, it's incorrect. Uh, But some of the things he wrote were denounced as heretical or dangerous after his death by Pope John the 22nd. So I'll give you just a brief run over about his life and then the things that he wrote, uh, a few hints about how to read Eckhart if you have never had a chance to read him and then a look at maybe one or two Eckhart texts that would illustrate, uh, you know, why he's so important and so read today. Eckhart dates are roughly 1260 to about 1328 uh, he was uh, born in southern Germany in, uh, in Saxony, from a family of the lower nobility. And of course the two great religious success stories in the 13th century, the new movements were the bendi- uh, mendicant orders, Dominicans and Franciscans and the beggings. And Eckhart, as a young man, joined, uh, joined the Dominicans at Air Force uh, in Saxony. and this was always his home his home cloister where he studied uh, his theology and then was promoted at like the smart young men would uh, be promoted. First of all, to go to the Dominican house of studies for all of Germany at Cologne. This is probably in the, you know, the uh, 1280s or so, and then on to do theology in Paris where he studied for any number of years in the 1280s and the 12 uh, and the 1290s. So the Dominicans had organized this kind of uh, you know, essential process where the smart kids got promoted, then they got promoted again, and then they got, uh, they got promoted again. It's significant to see Eckhart going to Cologne because while everybody knows Paris was so important as the center for medieval theology, modern research has shown that the Dominicans at Cologne, the origins of the present University of Cologne, were actually a significant movement in 13th and 14th century uh, theological thought. In 1248, the great Dominican teacher, Albert, Albertus Magnus, we call him, Albertus Teutonicus, Albert the German is what he was called then, he was sent by the order to set up what was called a studium generale, we would call it a kind of university today uh, for the German Dominicans. And that German uh, studium uh, generale from 1248 to about 1348, for about a hundred years. This was a center for theological, philosophical, mystical thinking in Germany. A whole generation of people studied with uh, with Eckhart, you know, uh, with Albert, I'm sorry. Albert had come from Paris and Albert brought his best student from Paris along with him in 1248. Happened to be an Italian named Tommaso D'Aquino. Thomas Aquinas is what we call him who studied there with Albert for the next four years or so. But Albert, while his time in Cologne was short, he educated a whole range of Dominicans and established a particular German-Dominican studium, a a German-Dominican way of doing theology and philosophy. Includes a whole number of people, I don't need to go into them here, but Meister Eckhart was one of them. And then Meister Eckhart's followers, great uh, thinkers, great mystics, like Henry Suso, John Tower, and, uh, and various others. This is the major philosophical, theological, mystical tradition in medieval Germany. It was basically a Dominican and it had been established by, by Albert the Great. So Eckhart had his beginning there. He went on to Paris where he studied and, be, and became a master, a Magister Theologiae, then as was typical, he was sent back to his own province in Germany for a number of years uh, in order to uh, be in his convent at Erfurt. But then he was promoted in 1302 to become a magister in Paris. This was the high point of anybody's theological career, the the master of theology for the for the Dominicans, uh, you know, in in Paris, where he only served for a couple of years. But that also was typical. During this time, both back in his convent at Erfurt and in his first uh, career in Paris, his first period of Paris, he was writing, he was preaching. He was preaching in the vernacular, he was writing in Latin and beginning his great series of commentaries, uh, questions and propositions, uh, et cetera. Then he was sent back to uh, Erfurt again um, for a period of administration And then, which was very unusual, he was sent back to Paris uh, for another period, a second period of magister, of being master. Only Thomas Aquinas before him had enjoyed that privilege within the Dominican order. Again, he was only there for a couple of years, but he continued that that period. And then for the rest of his career, he really was engaged in the pastoral work, what the Dominicans call cura animarum, the care of souls. First at Strasbourg between about 1313 and 1324. And then later on in his age and years at Cologne from about 1324 through 1326. And it's here that probably most of his, um, most of his uh, preaching work was done. Well, it's very difficult to, uh, you know, sort out when exactly Eckhart's, uh, Eckhart's writing date from. So what do we have for Eckhart in terms of what remains to us quite a bit? Uh, we have about 118 sermons in the vernacular. And uh, this is a very significant body of material. We also have a series of sermons in Latin. Some of them just notes, but others develop sermons. We also have six uh, long biblical commentaries because Eckhart thought that commenting on the Bible was essential to theological education. So I wrote two commentaries on Genesis. He wrote a commentary on Exodus. I wrote a commentary on wisdom short commentary on Ecclesiasticus, very long commentary on John. These are the heart of his theological endeavor really. And you have to keep both sides of Eckhart together, both uh, very creative vernacular preaching in Middle High German, and then also the very technical, academic scholastic work in the in the sermons themselves. And we have now a, a very good um, edition of these In 1934, the German government established a commission to edit all of Eckhart's works. You'll be happy to know they're still at it, but they're getting close to finishing. And these are massive volumes, six for the Latin works, five for the German works. Um, This is what one of the German no, I'm sorry. This is volume four of the Latin. These are the Latin sermons. So they're they're huge folio volumes, and now they're continuing on, finishing off the German, the German sermons. Uh, this is the latest fascicle of the German sermons published in 2016, but they're not they're not quite there. so. So you have a very good critical edition, which has inspired and uh, you know given a lot of uh, public attention to Eckhart and also to the translations of Eckhart. We are fortunate in English because a good deal of Eckhart is available in English. Not quite all of it, but if you're interested in, in, in Eckhart you can you can read a lot. And um, show and tell again In, in in the 1980s, I did two volumes of Eckhart and the Classics of Western Spirituality, which combined both selected sermons and also some of the Latin works. And then recently, and I, I really uh, want to recommend this because sermon, most people will find the sermons more interesting. Recently, we have two pretty full versions in English of, uh, of the sermons, the one is most really the complete mystical works of Meister Eckhart published by Crossroad. It's an old translation by a wonderful English uh, Eckhart scholar from many, many years ago. And then very, very recently, as a matter of fact, within the last year, uh, Marcus Vincent, a German scholar is doing Meister Eckhart's German works. This is all the sermons for the liturgical year, you know, they temporary the sermons of the liturgical year. So, you know, you can read lots of Eckhart. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's wonderful because this is not always the case with regard to many, uh, you know, many medieval authors. Uh, but reading Eckhart is not always easy, and particularly the sermons because they're different from almost any other medieval sermons that you'll read, or, or, if, you, or if you're familiar with these. As I said, he wrote about 117 or 18 German sermons. He wrote many Latin sermons. He wanted them to be collected in a book, and that's what this uh, Marcus Vincent thing has tried to do to follow the liturgical year. But as you read these sermons, you'll say, you know, what's, what's going on here? Some years ago, I taught a course uh, at Notre Dame on uh, Meister Eckhart in the summer, and uh, I had all the students report on a single Eckhart sermon. You know, that's a kind of classroom presentation. And they would read it and they'd give a presentation in class. And I had this one older nun who read her sermon and she gave a presentation, and she said afterwards, "Well, this is what this is what Meister Eckhart says, if somebody like that preached to me, I'd walk out of the church. So Eckhart may not be for everybody, but I think if you're prepared to know what's going on, you may be able to understand what his preaching is trying to do. So let me just give you a few points about that before I I turn to uh, looking at, at some of the works themselves. Eckhart was a Dominican, Ordo Predicatorum, the order of preachers. So his major identity in life was to be a preacher. Not, you know, not to be really a university professor, although he was that, but to be a preacher. And Eckhart was convinced that the preacher should be a channel for divine truth. Should not be preaching his own stuff. He should be preaching God's word. God should preach through him. In one of his uh, Latin commentaries, he puts it this way. The preacher of the word of God, which is God's power and God's wisdom, ought not to exist and live for himself, but for the Christ he preaches. Okay, but Eckhart takes this a step further because in some sermons, and I hope to talk about sermon 52 today, he says that it's not Meister Eckhart preaching to you, it's divine truth preaching to you. So listen up, this is really important. So he is firmly convinced that if the preacher empties himself of his own particularities and his desires and his own knowledge and his wisdom that God divine truth will preach through him. And then Eckhart's uh, sermons also, you know, from the viewpoint of what we might call style, not to theological so much, but it's a tremendous verbal creativity. He was preaching in middle high German. It was a new language. So Eckhart had to invent new words and phrases to express what he intends to say. And he has to take the rhetorical strategies from the classical uh, rhetoric paradox, oxymoron, antithesis, negations, double negations, exaggerations, accumulations, parallelism, hyperbole, all those things. And he has to bring them over to the German language as it's beginning to form. So Eckhart is using language in new ways. And you could say, he tries to subvert language and to surpass language in his practice. Uh, this is one of the reasons why modern deconstructionist thinking thinkers have often been interested in, in Eckhart and, and turned to his sermons. Eckhart is not a deconstructionist, I want to tell you that, but I can see why some modern thinkers would be interested in him. Then Eckhart insists that his language is excessive. You know, he goes over the top. He's not holding back. And he does that because he says that scripture is excessive. So if you're going to preach the scripture, you're going to preach excessively. Again, I have a quotation here from his commentary on the Gospel of John. Such a mode of speaking that is excessively properly belongs to the divine scriptures. Everything divine is such as such is immense, not subject to measure. The excellence of divine things does not allow them to be offered to us uncovered, but they're hidden beneath sensible figures. So yeah, Eckhart says, of course I often speak very, very excessively, and but that's the way I feel I have to do it. Eckhart is a biblical preacher, but he's very, very free to interpret the scripture in his own way. You know, there's no German Bible at this stage. So he takes the Latin Bible and he interprets it, he reads it, he often rewrites it in order to make the point that, uh, you know, that he's trying to uh, put across in in the sermons. And then just a a final point or two here, Eckhart's sermons are what German scholars have called appellative. That is, they address the hearer, the reader directly. They're not just lining up truths, I'm gonna tell you this one. No, they invite the hearer to do something. They call on the hearer to do something. They, not ordering them, but inviting them. If you want to do this, then this is how you should act. And then they rarely have a sequential sequence. You know, many medieval sermons, because there are sermon books that tell us, they tell you exactly how to organize the sermon point by point by point by point. Eckhart rarely does that. Uh, he doesn't follow a, 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 what we call a logical sequence. This is difficult for the modern reader. He uses what another German scholar has called um, paradigmatic substitution, paradigmatic substitution, which means Eckhart has a number of mystical and theological paradigms, models, important uh, aspects of things in his mind. And he jumps back and forth because he sees them as all related. We may not always see them that way. So you'll be reading Eckhart and you'll say, he's jumped to something totally different. Where did that come from? And that's part of the the joy and perhaps the frustration of of reading Eckhart, of these paradigmatic substitutions. Where did he get this? How are these the kinds of things related? And then finally, I would say that uh, it's important to remember Eckhart's a liturgical preacher. Everything he preaches is on liturgical texts from the Feasts of the Day, where he picks out a passage or two but it's also different because the point is he's gonna pick out the inner message of the feast and this particular text. So he's not gonna tell you a story. When he preaches at Christmas or Easter, it's not gonna tell you about baby Jesus in the crib or anything like that. He's gonna take the fundamental notion of Christmas, which is the birth of the word in the human life. And uh, so, the, but that's for him, that's the liturgical meaning of the mystery. He wants to get you to the heart of the mystery. Uh, Now I'd like to show you this chart, Robert can we move on to, uh, there it is. Once you've mastered that you'll know everything you need to know about Eckhart. I've been using this chart, it was much simpler uh, 40 years ago or whenever I first uh, used it and now you know it gets a little more complicated but this is the way I usually try to introduce people to the thinking of Meister Eckhart. <clears throat> and I'll try to explain it. And then I'll try to illustrate it by uh, a text or two in the time that's uh, remaining uh, remaining to us. You'll note on the far left hand side the word Grund. Ground, Grund. Very simple. Call it a metaphor. I've called it a master metaphor, an explosive metaphor. When Eckhart says, my ground is God's ground and God's ground is my ground, if you meditate about that, you will begin to get into Eckhart's vision about the reality, total reality and our relationship to the, to the divine. So uh, God is important, but it's God, not as we understand him, but God, God as the mysterious ground of all things. And what's most remarkable about this is that we share in God's ground. God's ground is my ground. My ground is God's ground. What can he possibly mean, mean by that? But the way in which Eckhart begins to explain it, of course, numerous sermons, and this also goes for the, <clears throat> the Latin works as well, is by a very ancient and traditional theological paradigm, the notion of exitus and regitus, Uzgank and Ingank in German. The going out from and the returning to God of all things. I often think it is a very nice little poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The God I come from to thee go all day long like water flow. From thy hand out swayed about in thy mighty glow. I mean, that's what exitus and reitus really mean that the dynamic process by which the hidden ground of God becomes evident in the Trinity and then in creation and then returns to the ground is the kind of uh, basic, uh, if you will, the basic life of the of the Eckartian system. So the ground in itself is hidden, it's unknown, It's beyond all language, although we use that metaphor, but as it comes forth, as it exits, as it goes out, and then as it returns, it it manifests itself and and its life. When Eckhart talks about this exitus or usgank, in several sermons, he makes a very important distinction, and this is very typically Eckhart, between what he calls in Latin, Bulizio and ebulizio. You'll see them there on the on a little chart. Bulizio is inner boiling. You put the top on the pot. You boil the water. Remarkable things happen inside. Ebulizio is when you take the top off and it overflows. It boils away. And bulizio, that is the inner life of the Trinity, the divine inner boiling, the life of the three persons in the Trinity, is for Eckhart, the source, the paradigm, the model for all ebulizio, that is the whole universe, as a boiling out from God, is Trinitarian in structure. Again, a remarkable insight. Um, Bonaventure has something close to it, but not, not, not quite in the same way. So, and the bulizio, and by the way, bulizio in the technical, Scholastic terminology is what Eckhart would call formal causality, which for him is far more important than ebolitio, which is efficient causality. The reverse for Thomas Aquinas, by the way. Both Thomas Aquinas and Eckhart thought both forms of causality were very, very important as well as final causality. But Thomas put the emphasis on efficient causality. Eckhart put the emphasis on formal causality. So, that inner boiling, the formal causality, is uh, God understood as absolutely one, the unum, God un- understood as indistinct essay, indistinct existence, and God understood as pure intelligere, pure the pure act of understanding. All these traditional attributes for God are very, very important for Eckhart. But again, he has his own uh, way of dealing with them, and it's not quite Thomas Aquinas. He he loved Thomas Aquinas and cites him often. But his fundamental thinking is rather different. So this Belicio takes place in God. It's the bolicio in which the word flows from the Father and the Holy Spirit flows from the Father and the Son. But for Eckhart, it also takes place in humanity. Ah, Why? Because humanity is made in the image and likeness of God as it says in Genesis. So if we're really going to be image, homo et imago, we will be in some sense divine. We take part in the inner boiling of the Trinity. Eckhart insisted on that, got him into a lot of trouble, but he was, he was insistent that this was indeed the case. And it happens in the principle, in principio, because God is a, is the principle, the principle of all things. So, <clears throat> That Bulizio in which the Trinity boils over and boils among itself, and which humanity as imago dei shares, is the source for the boiling over, which is creation. So you see under Ebolizio there, you'll see creatio and faxio, uh, that is creation and faxio, all kinds of making. That's uh, odd too, because, but Eckhart will insist that if we make anything, any intelligent, subject, who makes something, is partaking in the same kind of activity of the God who made the universe. And here, this is an expression of God as, as bonum, God as goodness, overflowing from his inner oneness, and essay saying distinctive and intelligere into the world, a world that is a world of particular things, particular existences, that's what this term sa at hok means. And it's a world in which humans exist, but humans exist as kind of the second part of second aspect of humanity, which is homo ud ad imaginem, not imago, but ad imaginem, made to the image. So the human being for Eckhart exists on two levels. On the first level, ut imago as one and the same as God. On the second level, as created as ad imaginem, that is less than God, a created being, a particular being, uh, an essay hoc at hoc. And this is very important because Eckhart's most daring statements about our oneness with the word, being born from the father and all these other things have to be understood with regard to one aspect of humanity. And Eckhart, when taking the task, would say, oh, but wait a minute, I never denied that humans also have another aspect. So there we are, the process of exodus has happened. But that process involves a kind of distancing from God and sin is involved here, it's complicated, I don't wanna go into that. But in order to return, there has to be a link between God and human that is taken up in the role of the incarnate word, Eckhart's essential Christology. And for Eckhart, God created the world so that the word be, would become incarnate. It's not because Adam sinned, that was a, an unfortunate add-on, but it's that was the intention of God from the beginning, that the overflowing would return through the second person, the Trinity, taking on human flesh and encouraging and enabling human beings to, Become involved in that in that radiatus process. So <clears throat> there's a very deep, um, what I call essential Christology in, in Eckhart, different from a lot of other contemporaries. Uh, but to say, as some people have said in the past, well, there's really no role for Christ in Eckhart, totally wrong. But what about this radiatus? Second part of the outline here. Well, it really involves three kinds of activities that are communicated to us by the word, through scripture, and through the preacher. Detaching, birthing, and breaking through. And as you read Eckhart's sermons, the whole 117 of the vernacular, and even more, you'll find these themes over and over and over again being, being emphasized. detaching, that is what detaching means is we have to become detached from our particularity, our essay hawk at hawk. We have to let that go, Galassenheit. We have to detach ourselves from it. That's what the term Abgescheidenheit means. We have to become free and clear and empty, Leidig bloß Reckhart, attachment to ourselves, our desires. This is the enemy of the possibility of returning. So detaching is a fundamental process. And as you detach, these are not stages, they work together. You'll gradually come to realize the birth of the word in the soul. And it's always happening. The divine word is always being born in the soul because we are are the image of God. No different from the second person. We just don't know that when we become attached and stay attached to our own particular wishes. So, Eckhart is always talking about the birth of the word and the soul and how it's necessary to let go of everything to recognize the birth of the word and the soul within. This is probably the most constant theme in in Eckhart's uh, sermons, uh, the notion of the the birth of the word and the soul. A lot of the formulations of this are very dangerous because these are things that were brought up in the papal investigation of of Eckhart's uh, preaching. So by birthing, we recognize that we are within the life of the Trinity. Eckhart goes even further, because in some sermons, he talks about the necessity for going beyond the Trinity, breaking through, sprechen, breaking beyond the Father, Son and Holy Spirit insofar as they seem to represent some kind of distinction and breaking back into the Grund, which is the source. Now, those particular passages on Durchbrechen or breaking through, they're obviously very, very controversial, but I think properly understood within the context of what I'm trying to lay out here, how they fit the Eckhartian system. What happens when you break through? You learn to live without a why. That's Eckhart's ethics, living without a why. God has no why. He operates out of his spontaneous goodness. The person who's broken through into the ground also lives without a why in a life of spontaneous goodness. And he achieves unitas indistinctionis, an indistinct oneness with God. Again, quite controversial because many earlier mystics had talked about, well, you you become one with God in spirit and in love, but you're not one being with God. Eckhart says, no, you are. You know, well, you're one beyond being, but you're absolutely one. You're indistinct. Uh, At this stage, I would ask classes if they understood everything perfectly, but I don't quite have that um, option here. I'd like to illustrate that general picture with Granum Sinapis I love this poem. It's uh, the mustard seed. And um, It's a sequence, uh, medieval form, uh, really a Victorine sequence in terms of its rhyming schemes, et cetera. But Victorine sequences are all in Latin. This one happens to be in German. From the early 14th century. And I think it's a very fine summary of uh, of Eckhart's view as I've tried tried to, to lay it out here. Is it by Eckhart? The scholars differ, as you, as you might imagine, and lots has been written on this particular on this particular poem, in in various ways. I tend to. I, I, if Eckhart didn't write it, who could have written it? It's a fantastic summary, and it's also one of the greatest mystical poems I think in the Western canon. It stands with John of the Cross and various other great great mystical poems, and it tries to lay out this picture of uh, <clears throat> basically exitus and, and reditus. Obviously, in a short poem, you can't uh, pull everything in, but I think it does, uh, it does what it, what it tries to do. So, le- let me, le- let me take you, let me take you through it. Uh, the first three, there are eight stanzas. The first three uh, stanzas, I think, deal basically with the, with the exitus, and they deal primarily with the volizio and the trinity. Let me just read it, <clears throat> I'll try to not a scholar of middle high german but let me in them begin her über sinn ist er das wort o reicher hort da begin begin gra auf a da brust mit lust das wort hier fluss doch hat der schruss das wort behalten das es war so in the beginning in the principle principium in Latin, high above all understanding is ever the word. Now this is very interesting because, you know, as you know, John's gospel says the word was from, it was in the beginning, was. Here Eckhart says not was, but is, because this is always absolutely, absolutely eternal. So high above understanding is ever the word and the word is a rich treasure. There the beginning, that is the father, always bore the beginning because the beginning is also the son. The son is the beginning of all things. And then you turn, O Father's breast, from thy delight the word ever flows. I mean, it's not only an intellectual procession, it's also a procession of love. The word ever flows from thy delight, lust, and flowing out. Here we go, exitus. The word ever flows, yet the bosom retains the word truly. So the word is both flowing out, but staying in, out and in. Then the second stands; it takes up the whole of the role of the Holy Spirit. Von Svein nein flut, der menen glut, der zwei erband, den Svein bekannt. Flusset der viel süßer Geist, die lebendig und schelig die drei hinein. Weißt du was? Nein, ich weiß es selber allermeist. So from the two, as one source. I think we, Michael, if we could move to the next. Uh... Okay, good. From the two as one source comes the fire of love. This is the Holy Spirit, the fire of love. The bond of father and son, that's good Augustinian theology, known to both, so it's a both a bond of love and a bond of knowledge. So it all flows the all-sweet spirit. And then co-equal, undivided. Interesting, I mean, unschelig, This is the Athanasian Creed, by the way, about the uh, uh, attributes of the the three persons of the Trinity. And then, you know, the three are one. Do you understand why? No, it best understands itself. So only the Trinity, you know, can really understand this mystery, but we can kind of set it forth. And then you set forth what I would call, you know, the kind of apophatic theology in the third in the third strophe here, which doesn't uh, really describe so much the bullizio itself, but presupposes it. This bond of three causes deep fear. Um, different ways to translate that. I looked up my friend Alan de Libera today, he says, is profound and terrible. That might be a better translation. This bond of three causes deep fear. Of this circle there's no understanding. It's apathetic. You can't understand it. This is a depth without ground. There's Eckhart's terminology about ground, deep, too deep for understanding. And then he turns to creation, with very you know, kind of powerful metaphor, check and mate to time, forms, place. You know Checkmate to everything in creation, time, form, place. They don't pertain to this world. And then he says, this wondrous circle is the principle. Wondrous circle is a principle, its point never moves. And that's actually a reference to a famous medieval definition of God in the Book of the 24 Philosophers, but we don't need to go into that here. I do want to get to, because I know our, our time moving is moving on here. The last four stanzas, which you have, Really concern the reditus, the ingang. and they talk about it under the metaphors, uh, powerful metaphors, that Eckhart uses throughout his uh, his teaching and his sermons, but also in his in his Latin works as well. Now it starts with uh, 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 what I would call a mystical oxymoron. Note the last stanza closes. Its point never moves. Das unbeweget stet sein Punkt. The next stanza starts. Puntus berg St, the mountain of this point. Now how can a point be a mountain? That's the mystical oxymoron. The point of this mountain, and then what? It's an invitation.. Intel intellect. Only intellect for can uh, underst- can begin to ascend the paradoxical mountain. The mystery of God, the point that is the mountain. So, intellect, you know, you better get working here. You gotta start heading up the mountain. But then, as you head up the mountain, the mountain turns into a desert. This road, the road, leads you into a marvelous desert, an Abusta Wunderlich. And that cart often talks about God as the desert, the measureless desert. didn't create this theme. The desert is important, Pseudo-Dionysius. The first Western thinker who speaks about God as a desert is actually John Scotus Ereugena. But Eckhart goes into great detail in many, many sermons about God as the desert. Desert is a major metaphor, the immeasurable emptiness, uh, attractive emptiness, the silence. Of the of the guide, so the road leads you out in the marvelous desert, and it's a desert so broad, so wide, it stretches out immeasurably. The desert has neither time nor place. It's not a created desert; no time and place. Its mode of being, its mode of being is singular. It's it's unusual. There's nothing like it. So we stick with the desert then for the next few stanzas. It's a good desert. The good desert. No foot disturbs it. Created being never enters there. It's gone. It is and no one knows why. It exists in some way, but we don't know why. God exists without a why. He just is. And then you get these wonderful... uh, you know, joined a, a couple, it's here, it's here, it's there, it's far, it's near, it's deep, it's high, it is in such a way that it is neither this nor that, it's not created, this is essay distinctum, essay hoc at hoc, God is not essay hoc ad hoc, God is not a thing, God is beyond this or that, God is, if we want to use the language of essay or existence, God, <clears throat> God is essay indistinctum, indis, indistinct existence. And by the way, <clears throat> again, just a note, <clears throat> that phrase, it's us us nah, far and it is near. Oh. Uh, Eckhart's contemporary, the great begging mystic, Marguerite Porret, speaks of God as the loin play, the far near. We know Eckhart read Marguerite Porret so I think it's quite possible, he's, he's echoing Perrette here, it's it's far and it is near. It puts together things that we think of as contradictory. And he continues this now in, um, in surface six. It's light, it's clear, it's totally dark, it is unnamed, it is unknown, it's free of beginning or end, it is eternal, that is. It stands still, it's pure and unclothed. Who knows where it dwells, it's who's. Let him come forth and tell us of what form or sort it is. Nobody knows. God is fundamentally apophatic. He's beyond all our understanding. We can talk about God, and Eckhart and other mystics talk about God endlessly with great creativity, but they recognize what I call the apophatic imperative. We cannot know God. Finally, the... The sequence changes to a personal level, not just laying out things. We have what's called, what I call a du strofe, a strophe in seven, and then an ich strofe, an i strofe in eight. It's addressed, first of all, it's addressed to the reader. It's not just, you know, read about this, and you oh know, this is great theology. No, do something about it. It's a pelletive. als <laughs> ein Kind, become like a child. Become deaf, become blind. And then the great lines your own something must become nothing. Your own something, your ich, must become nicht. You must annihilate yourself. That card's verb for that in Middle High German, not used here, is entwerden, unbecoming. Drive away all something, all nothing. Leave place, leave time. Avoid even images. Entbilden is another fine verb in Eckhart, disimaging. Go without a way on the narrow path, then you will find the desert's track. So this is Eckhart, you know, ad- addressing the reader. You better start doing this. But then, and the, I love the close of this, and I'll close with this too, because we want to have time for it. Uh, the author, I think Meister Eckhart, addresses himself. Oh, Selamine. Oh, my soul, go out. Let God come in. Sink all my something into God's nothing. Sink in the bottomless flood. If I flee from you, you come to me. If I lose myself, then I find you. Oh, goodness, above being. It's a very kind of Augustinian uh, uh, conclusion to that and I think there's a lot of Augustine in here as well as Dionysius and others you know Augustine in the Confessions talks a lot about fleeing from God and yet God is always going to come to him so that's an approach to Meister Eckhart I think I better close here because if I start on doing one of his sermons we'll be going beyond our, our legitimate time uh, Robert and Michael is that is that okay for your?
1: Oh yes, thank you so much. This this has been tremendous. Um, before before we move off the share screen, uh, can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Uh, you've mentioned a couple times about uh, uh, Meister Eckhart's life. How uh, he was considered a heretic, but that's not quite right. But he does get into some kind of trouble. Uh, we have a slide real fast about about that, let's see if I can navigate back. Would you say really fast, how did, how did Meister Eckhart finish out?
2: Okay, in 1326, some of Eckhart's opponents, while he was living in Cologne, he was an elderly man, pulled out a bunch of articles from his sermons and from his written works, and he was accused of heresy. Mm. Eckhart defended himself vigorously, and we have those documents in Avignon, and then he appealed to the Pope, and so in 1327, he went to Avignon. And we also have documents in Avignon where he defended himself at the at the papal court. Eckhart says, I may have said some wrong things. I was never a heretic. Because if you, if you show me where I'm wrong, I will immediately correct it. And he labored extensively to try to show how, what he said. He sometimes admitted, oh, that was not well said. I'm sorry I said that. Um, but he said, you, I, you can accuse me of error, but you can't accuse me of heresy. So then Eckhart dies, probably early 1328. In uh, 1329, Pope John XXII issues the bull in Agro Dominico, condemning thir- uh, 26 propositions from Eckhart. Some as heretical, some as dangerous. By the end of that bull, he says, well, these are wrong. But Eckhart himself, at the end of his life, admitted that, <clears throat> you know, they could be, only insofar as they could be misunderstood, mm. they should be condemned. Mm. So he never admitted he was wrong. He said only insofar as some stupid people misunderstood them. So he was never condemned as a heretic. Mm. Some things from his writing were condemned as dangerous or heretical. But Eckhart always said, and well, you know, I'm, some people may get them wrong. And so that's too bad. Is that,
1: yeah. is that helpful? Oh, yeah, no, that is. Yeah, there was, there was lots of little little hints there. I was just wondering if we could. Yeah, thank you, you very know, much.
2: I, I would say this, of course, Eckhart still has an ambiguous reputation. Oh. Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, <clears throat> if you tried to talk about Eckhart, a lot of Catholics would say, oh, he's a heretic, right? No, that's not quite right. Hmm. In the 1980s, the Dominican Order petitioned Pope John Paul II to rescind the condemnation. Thus far, no word from the Vatican.
1: Hmm.
2: But they go slow.
1: Hmm. Thank you. So we only have a little bit of time left, but we've had a lot of great questions so far. Um, we have a first question about this, this grand scheme, which you've laid out for us so well, and the exodus, the outgoing, and the retitus, the return. Uh, our, first, our first question comes from uh, uh, John, who asks, is Eckhart's, Ed Bulizio has a participatory conception of humankind's relationship to divinity as closely comparable to Eastern Christian understanding of theosis as they superficially might seem. If so, how do you think Eckhart's thought differs from Orthodox theology?
2: That's a very tough question, mm-hmm. which I think I would need another lecture <laughs> <laughs> to try to spell out. I, let me put it very briefly. I think there are certain very useful analogies between what Eckhart is saying and what a number of Eastern theologians have said, particularly about theosis and and the like. But it's a complex question. And Eckhart's not an Eastern theologian. He comes out of a Western tradition, but he knew some Eastern theologians quite well. Mm -hmm. So as I said, that's another lecture. Thank you. And just invite me back and I'll-
1: Uh, Well, (laughs) that'll be the next one. Well, so you actually left an opening in the door there, because we have another question about deification and, and, and Augusta uh, and the Western tradition. Uh, Thomas asks, Meister Eckhart's notion of human participation in divinity as amago dei seems somewhat reminiscent of St. Augustine's teaching about the amago dei as the basis for human deification. What was his relationship to Augustine? Did Meister Eckhart integrate Augustinian texts or allusions into his sermons dealing with the Omago Dei?
2: Eckhart, like all Western theologians, is deeply Augustinian. He cites Augustine at least as much or almost as much as anybody, uh, but there are differences. For Augustine, humans are only Ut Imago. They're always made to the image of God. Augustine ruled out it, uh, humans being imago Dei, that is one and the same, as the, as the word in the in the divine life. So there, he uses Augustine. He appreciates Augustine, but he differs from Augustine.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, on the same topic, the sort of the reditus side of, of the diagram, uh, we have a question about Galosenhheit, a famous famous concept. Nindio asks. Uh, this is a little bit of a long question about the, the heritage of this, this concept. Uh, they ask, what does Gelassenheit really mean for Eckhart? There are multiple meanings to this word. In your book, you chose to translate it as letting go or detachment, which is close to self-abandonment. Abgescheidenheit. I came across early Anabaptist use of Gelassenheit, in which they understood it as complete yieldedness or yielding oneself to God's will. Since early Anabaptists, such as like Han Donk, uh, were influenced by Johannes Tauler and the Theologica Germanica, yep. is their use similar to the meaning of Gelassenheit as Eckhart understood it?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. That's a very interesting question because uh, letting go, of course, is rooted in the scriptures. who does not abandon himself and follow me, you know, all of that thing about abandoning the self. So it's very deep in the whole Christian tradition. With Eckhart and his contemporaries, that idea of releasement takes on, I would say, much more a kind of metaphysical coloring than than a purely moral coloring. That it is still moral. It's it's what you have to do, but it also is a metaphysical practice. Eckhart's, excuse me, got to take on Eckhart's notion is very influential on Tauer and Suso and then on people who read them and also on, on the radical reformers in the Reformation, including people like Denk and even more people like uh, um, Weigel and, and others like that. So <clears throat> there's a history of Golasinheit down and for the next four centuries, that is not and not just purely Eckhart, but often uses Eckhartian themes in their own way. I <clears throat> I think and I've suggested this in writing that uh, the radical reformers tend to build in more of the moral dimension, or they build it back in in a way somewhat different from Eckhart. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Thank you.
2: Den could be a good example. But not Weigel. Weighl is very metaphysical about this, ontological, mm-hmm. whatever we want to call it.
1: And and in the same respect, we've had another question about uh uh, Luther's influence, or, or the influence that Luther received uh, from from uh, this this tradition, as well as um, as, as well as uh, Eckhart himself, um, I seem to have lost it right now in the in the question in the Q and A. Uh, but could you say a little bit about how, how Eckhart fed into into Luther's thinking? Yeah,
2: uh, Luther loved Taylor. Hmm. He just thought good Doctor Teller was a really good German theologian. Mm. And he edited, you know, his, uh, his, some of his works, and he read him very carefully. We now know that some of the German sermons that Eckhart uh, and that T- Luther wrote were actually by Eckhart. So uh, that there is a line of connection there. But it's basically through Towler.
1: Mm. Fair enough. So uh, uh, Towler's first name? Uh, reminds- Johannes, John Towler. Yeah, that's right, of course. But Johannes Tower,
2: and particularly, of course, Tower's ta- notion uh, <clears throat> of, you know, complete self-abandonment, which mm-hmm. Luther loved, the complete dark night, uh, you know, the dereliction of the soul, which is stronger in Tower than in, than in Eckhart. So there's a lot of connection.
1: Hmm. Thank you. And speaking about some of the central metaphors or images, as you mentioned, he's a, 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 a preacher who uses images to access, uh, Michael asks about the central image of, of the ground a little bit. Michael asks, Eckhart's central metaphor is that of the ground, grund. Given that he is also very interested in negations, is there a specific significance for Eckhart in using the metaphor of the abyss, abgrund, literally a negation of the ground?
2: They're very closely connected. Hmm. Uh, Eckhart tends to use Grund and Grundelosso Grund, which is like abgrund, you know, the groundless ground, Mm. more often than abgrund or the abyss. But Eckhart does use the abyss fairly frequently and the abyss kind of takes over among Eckhart's followers. Uh, It's complicated, but it's, it's used much more by his followers than it is by him. I think they go together, particularly when you think of the groundless ground, which is the same as the abyss. Hmm. I, I think in terms of its function within his thought. But this is a new movement, I think, in Western, in, in Western thinking, because uh, and the ground earlier on had been thought of, you know, as a God's groundless goodness and our groundless sinfulness. For Eckhart, the ground characterizes both God and the soul, and it's their inner mystery. Hmm. It's not just the contrast between goodness and sinfulness, but it's the inner mystery. Of the union of God and the soul.
1: Hmm. And on that, quite uh, right on that on that theme, this unity or this mm-hmm. this living oneness, right, living without or this absolute indistinct oneness and living without a why. We have a question from Hans about uh, on this topic. Uh, Hans writes, "How would Eckhart explain that we become absolutely one with God and still remain who we are? Do we remain distinct?" as Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct, yet one? Or are we absorbed into the person of God somehow? It's both. Hmm.
2: And that's why I stress that distinction between homo imago and homo ad imaginem. And Eckhart, when he's taking the task in his trial, he invokes that distinction quite often, although he usually doesn't use it in sermons, he's preaching from one side or the other. That is, the concrete human existence, such as we, exists on two levels: a level, we inner level, where we are one with God, both as Trinity and as ground, and an outer level where we where we live in distinction. Eckhart's preaching is designed to say, "Wake up! You're forgetting that you are really one with God in your inner being, but you remember, of course, that you're not one with God in your outer in your outer created being." So that's the essence of it. Could. It's hard to understand, and this is why Eckhart was taking the test. For the I didn't read. You know, the, he has these statements that you say, "Oh, how can you say that?" But Eckhart could say, "Well, you you can say that because if you recognize that there is a distinction." And he said his purpose as a preacher is to remind people of that message because they don't hear it otherwise.
1: Mm. Yeah. Mm and this this seems to have touched a nerve because we've had we have several comments not only in his own time but also in our presentation there's a lot of questions about this indistinct unity um what another question is right on this line if i might if i press this a little bit further how the question right reads how does indistinct unity differ from the deification of the saints in which they are raised up to godlike status through their unity in and with christ
2: well I think Eck- Eckhart uses deification language quite frequently, and I think what he would say is that you know the inner meaning of deification is becoming indistinctly one with God.
1: Hmm. Hmm.
2: But there's also the process of deification, which concerns the outer, the outer person, the distinct human being, who's using, you know the, the grace and the sacraments and various other things. Eckhart's primary concern, though, is that people should not forget that there is a deep level, which is always in the depths of the soul, in the grunt of the soul, where they are one with God, and they are one with the Word being born from the Father, one with the Holy Spirit proceeding from Father and Son, and and also even one with the ground, which is boiling out into the Trinity. Hard to figure.
1: Yeah, these are difficult, difficult concepts. Uh, So so let go, Mm.
2: just have to let go. Eckhart is very much in favor of letting go, Mm. elassenheit.
1: In the context of this this course, we would, looking at the more technical, as you said, uh, uh, the more the technical rational thinking, as well as the contemplative uh, side. As you said before, Eckhart's doing both in a very rigorous way. Um, We've had a a question about this more technical side of things from uh, Pirouat, if I'm getting the name right. They ask, what is Eckhart's attitude towards nature and natural philosophy? How does nature fit in, for instance, within his his analogy between divine creation, creatio, and human faxio?
2: Eckhart, again, is very unusual because he thinks that philosophy and good theology are one and the same.
1: Mm.
2: And he says several times that what you read in scripture and what you read in Aristotle are one and the same thing if you have the proper understanding. Mm-hmm. So that he says, because Aristotle for instance understood the nature of foxy or making, Aristotle had really grasped the truth of the Trinitarian emanations. And he's quite different from Thomas Aquinas
1: mm.
2: who has his two levels, <clears throat> what nature can know and what Revelation has to give you. For Eckhart, that isn't so. <clears throat> God is the author, both of scripture and of philosophy. And good philosophy can be coherent, fully coherent with revelation. And he argues that in great detail. Hmm. In his, more in his Latin works, of course.
1: Hmm. So in that way, would he be closer to Bonaventure than than to Thomas?
2: In some ways, but again, there's also a difference. Hmm. Because Bonaventure has two kinds of philosophy, Christian philosophy and revealed philosophy. Eckhart doesn't have that distinction.
1: Hmm. Ah, okay. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, we've had several questions about the poem from Gerard Manny Hopkins. Uh, <laughs> could you repeat the, the name of the poem for us?
2: <clears throat> I'm not sure I can repeat the name. It's 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 in the collected
1: poems. Ah, okay.
2: It's, it's a very short poem. I'm not sure he gave it a name.
1: Okay, we'll look it up and maybe we'll post it on our, on, online when we put this on, on YouTube. Yeah, if you could, that would be great. Wonderful. Um, uh, I think we're coming to the, the end of time. Uh, Professor Bernard, um, again, thank you so much. This has been uh, quite a, quite a, a, a heady uh, presentation. It's something, something really to think about and swim with.
2: Uh, thank, thank you all who, thank you all who are listening in or looking in, and uh, just learn to love Eckhart.
0: <laughs> well, Professor, again, on behalf of the Lumen Christie Institute and on behalf of all our other viewers, thank you for giving us this deep dive into Meister Eckhart, and I, I think the wisdom of both learning to live without a why and learning to let go is relevant to all of us during this time of sheltering in place and. And in this time where we're all facing the challenges, uh, both uh, that we're hearing from the outside world and, and the challenges in our own home. Um, I wanna thank you all for tuning in uh, this week. And if you've enjoyed this program and you want to support our work to continue to bring free events like this to you, to students and to other viewers, you can support our work at www.lumenchristi.org donate. I'd also invite you to join us next week for actually a student of Professor McGinn's, uh, David Albertson, who will be, um, who will be uh, teaching us about Nicholas of Cusa next week. Bernie, do you have a plug for Nicholas of Cusa for those who don't know anything about him?
2: He loved Eckhart with good reason.
0: <laughs> well, there we are. So if you've enjoyed this week and if you've enjoyed Eckhart, then tune in next week to learn about another person who loved him as well. Bernie, thank you once more and have a wonderful evening. Thanks,
1: Michael. Thanks, Robert.